the Empire podcast this week, we talk dead shot with Emil Amin, and it's time to talk about Chris's dress sense with Nick Park. Wait, no, sorry, it's actually uh, 30 years of the wrong trousers. <laughs> All that and the usual movie news and nonsense on the only movie podcast that is excited to see Jason Statham return for the Little Women sequel, The Meg 2. Cannot oh, wait. So dies in a hail of bullets. That's Beth. True story. It isn't Beth. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, pod. I'm Helen O'Hara, and I am stepping in for our beloved leader, Chris Hewitt, who is offered a top secret location, literally working through the night uh, to bring you some tasty features goodness in an upcoming issue of Empire Magazine. But fear not, for I'm not alone here. I am joined by my very own book club, The Next Chapter hmm. of Companions, because yes, that's one of the films we're going to be reviewing later. We have our very own Diane Keaton. John Nugent. Hello. Oh, I'm Diane Keaton. You're the I? Diane Keaton oh, okay. in this one. Yeah, the slightly, you know, quiet, quirky one. The quirky know? one. Yeah, yeah. I can't take that. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. yeah. all right. Yeah, that's, that's cool. And our very own Candice Bergen, James Dyer. I mean, that's how I've always seen myself, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> that's how I see you. Yeah. I mean, honestly, well. at this point, I'm not sure what I see myself. Once again, once again, the fucking air conditioning is broken and this studio is a sweatbox, which is why we're all here in Speedos. So uh, We are. And yeah. I apologize for the mental image that that conjures. <laughs> yeah. um, hey, look, nothing like a good pair of budgie smugglers it, to, but did you need to grease yourself up though James that seemed a well I feel it conducts the heat away from my body so yeah so like a, a sort of thin layer of Vaseline all over the body yeah. I'm, I'm a bit like the greasy strangler really that's what yeah, I was going for that's not a reference that I really needed in my head right now I've just had lunch and I'm very uncomfortable the greasy podder oh no oh that is awful but yes it is very hot in here uh, but we're going to you know soldier on regardless heroically some would say I mean obviously I wouldn't say that about us but but some people definitely would because, you know, it might fit the circumstance. Anyway, uh, it is time, I think, to take a question, get this thing kicked off. And uh, in response to my panicked shout out, literally three minutes before we started hmm. recording, I am thrilled to see that many of you rose to the challenge and came up with some very good questions. I've rejected all the ones that require serious thought and or research, right. uh, but I have a couple left. This one comes from at John O'Card on Twitter who says, having recently watched the Dungeons and Dragons movie with all of its lovely new Northern Ireland scenery, what's your favourite, hey, I know that place, in a movie? Oh, oh, this is a good one. And I have an answer fully like loaded in the tank. Boom, um, amazing. Ready to go because it's quite recent. It was Rye Lane. I don't know if you've seen yes. Rye Lane, but it's a wonderful, wonderful rom-com is now on Disney Plus and that's shot in your ends isn't it it's yeah. in my it's in my yard it's in my it's in my neighborhood uh yeah southeast london peckham and, and brixton and it's on disney plus now if you haven't seen it i really really recommend it. it's incredibly charming it's only 82 minutes long so it you know it's doesn't fabulous say it's welcome yeah. and i it's one of those films where i was watching it going okay i i can figure out the geography of where they're going they are staying true to the street the actual street plans yeah. They yeah. turn a left here, they're going to go here. Yeah, I know where that is. I know where that is. They go to the Peckinplex. They go to the <laughs> Il Giardino restaurant, which I've been to. Like Whoa. all of these like Peckham landmarks. It's really, really good. It's really special for that. I love yeah. that. Yeah, that's always a bit of a thrill when that happens. And, it, and it's a sort of film as well that kind of shows off the, mm -hmm. the area, like it uses like wide angle lenses and it's really like trying to like sell it as just this cool, quirky I mean, it is place. both cool and quirky. Yeah. You know, but yeah. Much that's like a, Diane Keaton. Indeed. Oh my God, it's all tying together. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with that. that. That was a fantastic one recently. And I, I don't know if people have noticed, I'm Northern Irish. So all of that Dungeons and Dragons stuff also worked for me. I was like, Hang on, hey. hang on. So you're saying that you're from Faerun? 
I am from Faerun, yes. Um, so the bit like when they're sitting on the beach talking about what they're going to do. The Sword Coast, yes. Yeah, and he's trying on the helmet and trying to get it to work. The helm, sorry, and trying to get it to work. I, like, that's up, up the road from where I grew up. That's it's up the Giant's Causeway. Yeah, I was, I was there, near there last time I was home and it was very exciting. Is that, um, is that the same beach where Roger Jean Page walks over a rock? Yeah, the one where he yes. walks over a rock. Yeah, it's just along Amazing. the coast. Oh. It's actually, I think I ran over it when I did the, or very near it, when I did the uh, Causeway Coast Marathon a few years ago, which, by the way, if anybody is a runner out there, really hard, yeah. loads of cliffs, don't do it. Terrible idea. What was I thinking? Anywho, so anytime I see like Northern Ireland on screen, like in, uh, not to go all pilot TV podcast for a minute, but yes. in, in Game of Thrones, mm. right? When Jamie Lannister gets off the boat in Dorne, that is my beach. That is like two minutes from the house. You live in Dorne. I live in Dorne, <laughs> except it's really not that Helen O'Hara, unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> Head crushed by a mountain, probably, <laughs> at some point. But uh, but yeah, that, so that is literally, you know. So does everyone from, from Port Stewart look like Pedro Pascal? If they did, do you think I would be here in London? What I mean, this is fair. Would I be doing here? Yeah. Why would I have left home? Yeah. Please. Why would you have gone to London where everyone looks like the denizens of Flea Bottom? Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. But yes, and I also have that nowadays with Greenwich. I knew you were going to yeah. say the Naval The Old Royal Naval yeah. College in Greenwich, yeah. which Chris and I talk about a lot because we both, we basically live on opposite sides of it. But it is in everything. Oh, everything. Yeah. It is in everything. Yeah. And... You know, for a good reason. Like, it's an amazing, it's an amazing set of buildings. I was just watching some Queen Charlotte from Bridgerton recently. It's, of course, it's in there. It's always in Bridgerton. Yeah. Uh, it's in the Crown, always. It's in, it plays Florence in The Dark Knight Rises at the end. Oh. It's not Florence. That's Greenwich. What, the, the very, like, the very, last very end. Yeah. I did plays, not know I that. It plays, I think, Moscow in The Man from Uncle. Uh, was what it is it in Red Cruella? Two. It was, it plays Regent's Park in mm. Cruella. It plays itself really well in Thor: <laughs> The Dark World. Yes, yeah. You know, it's got range, is what I'm saying. Oh, and it's in both Sherlock Holmes, Guy Ritchie's movies. Is it now? Yes, and it plays a place that you can see Piccadilly Circus from huh. in that ridiculous movie with the rock in it. Was it you might need to narrow Furious that down one? a touch. I think it was the Fast and Furious. Uh, yeah, it was the one where they're in London, isn't yeah. it? Which is fast. Six? Uh, Six. Yeah, the one where they go to London. Yeah. Or no, it was Hobbs and Shaw, I think. Is it? I think it's Hobbs it? and Shaw, that one. I mean, look, I'm not one to even intimate that all those films basically blend together, but, uh, you know. I think it's Hobbs and Shaw where they, they they look out like an archway, which is in Greenwich, yes. and they can see Piccadilly Circus. Yes, when they can see Hobbs or Shaw. Yes, exactly. indeed. I, you know, I wish I had a better answer for this, and it actually wounds me because I hate Camden so much, but... It got to the point, and, and you know, maybe it is because I have an abusive relationship with that place, but it got to the point where any time I saw, I'd get a bit excited when I saw Camden in something. Yeah. So like when Camden was in Eternals, I was like, oh my God, a bus got turned into petals right by Camden Lock. And that's just around the corner from the office. <laughs> and it, it really excited me. But in a way that something like This Year's Love, which is set exclusively in Camden Town, did not. Do you remember this? From, oh God, I want to say the late 90s. David uh, Grayson. No, it, it is. Be, well, the it must Dave, be early noughties. Is it early noughties? I think it was early. It noughties. definitely is that song. That song is on yeah. the soundtrack. Yeah, it's got it's got a frog smoking a cigarette on the on the poster. Kathy Burke's in it as well. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, so yeah, this year's love, second Camden. I think it's Duke Gray Scott, isn't it too? Uh, okay. I mean, I saw it once about however many years ago. But anyway, so so I, yeah, so I don't like where I grew up in Pinner. There's not an awful lot of you know, like Hollywood. Don't come a calling a great deal. An episode of Touching Evil, starring Robson Green, <laughs> shot okay. not just in Pinner but in my actual road, and you can see my actual house in that. 
Uh, it was, a, I believe, it was it was a standing for Germany, and it was a paedophile who lived on my road. So that was, uh, nice. was lovely. Nice. Um, wow. So we've had that, and you know, the, Jane March, the sinner from Pinner, obviously came from Pinner, but the sinner was not shot. Obviously, in, not sinner. What, what was it called? Uh, the love was it the lover? Was it called the lover? The Jane March film, where it was all very controversial. The Daily Mail had conniptions about it. I mean, um, that doesn't narrow it down. He doesn't really, does it? Anyway, the sinner from Pinner. She, she obviously came from there. But yeah, so that that that's about it, really. I don't I don't have. Nothing really gives me the the tingles in that way when I'm like, ooh, ooh, look at that, except for London as a whole. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's London films, isn't it? Where I, I think, I, yeah, I'm the same. I, mm. I grew up in like rural Herefordshire, which is not, you know, a Hollywood hotspot. Yeah, I not in that many Marvel movies. There are very few, yeah, sort of, uh, you know, sheep farmers um, <laughs> gracing our, our golden big screen. Uh, no, like London films, I guess, like I had that with Last Night in Soho. Yes. yes I watched that at the so. Prince Charles Cinema, which is literally, you know, 100% in the neighbourhood in which yeah. it's set, which is really fun. And that's another film where the geography Very pretty, much. pretty much makes sense. Like it, you know, yeah. she, if she turns a corner, she turns a corner onto the street you that can, she actually turns onto. You, you could know? map it and it would work. Like yeah. Edgar Wright is a stickler for that sort of thing. Um, similar with Attack the Block. That's again sort of more southwest mm-hmm. London. Like I, I, I watched that at the Ritzy in Brixton, and the the first shot of that film is like an overhead shot of Oval Tube Station, which is just up the road from there. And you know, a little right, little yeah. smatter of applause came when I watched it, and people were just like, oh, this, uh, <laughs> I, I know that Tube Station. I um, also have one more. Yeah. So I did a year in Paris when I was at university. Uh, it's Paris, Helen. Okay. J'habitais à Paris, you know, à l'université. All right, steady. Okay. And I lived at the very bottom of a fancy street called Avenue de Bretagne. And we had like a little flat that was just carved out of one of those big Parisian buildings. And we were very lucky to have it. And it was the most amazing place in some ways that I've ever lived. But it was, so this street ran straight up to the Invalides, the big building with the Golden Dome in Paris. And when I watched Ronin, and you see all the car chases uh, yeah, that go yeah. around Paris. And some of them, some of the geography actually, some of it makes sense, some of it really doesn't. But there is a moment where they basically, they're, they're driving around, they're, they're in the middle of a car chase, the, the worst of the danger has passed, and they have to pull over to the side of the road because Sean Bean is about to throw up. He threw up on my street. <laughs> and me and my friends were like watching that movie, like nudging each other going, that's our street. <laughs> we were so delighted to have Sean Bean throw up on it. And who wouldn't be? And who wouldn't be? Did you say he's a legend? One does not simply throw up on Helen's <laughs> one street. One does not doorstep. simply vomit onto our doorstep. Uh, what colour was your, your boathouse, Helen? That's not a euphemism. Uh, at Hereford's. Well, I well, never went to Hereford. Yeah, I mean, I'm from Hereford, and yeah, Robert De Niro calls it Hereford. Hereford, which people in Hereford find very funny. So that's so, probably why he didn't get the answer. Yeah, right? that's yeah. it. Exactly. He didn't like, what the it. fuck yeah. is Hereford? Hereford. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And also, Leicester Square. There, I mean, there's an SAS camp in Hereford, but there's no boathouse because there's no like it's landlocked. It's isn't there? <laughs> I mean, maybe there's a boathouse by the river. Yeah. But, but that's the point, isn't it? He's, he's you testing know, him. He's testing him. I mean, but badly. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually spent a while when I was living in Paris looking for those steps that the cafe is at the bottom of. They're up in Montmartre, obviously, but yeah. I find oh, the obviously. right steps after a little while. Yeah. So that was personal as well. I remember maybe this is from the John Wick. Spoiler chat we had, but I remember you getting quite annoyed at the geography of that film, right? <laughs> like he could have just got to the Montmartre really easily. He didn't have to go past. Could have got a cab or something. But see, that doesn't bother me so much. The things that bug me so much is like Thor: The Dark World when he's on. Is it the Jubilee line? What's I mean, he that's on? The famous one. Yeah. And he's. It's like where are you going? You're going to Greenwich, and he's on. Is well, he, or he's on the central line. No, what line is he problem. on? He, well, this is the problem. He gets on. He gets on at that un, unused platform that they have at Charing Cross, yeah. right? And ends in Greenwich. 
And, and, and she says it's like two stops to Greenwich because obviously she wants to snuggle up to Thor for a bit. Now, in fairness, on the train, if he'd been on the train, it would have been three stops to Greenwich until they did all that work on London Bridge and changed the routes of it. Sure. So would have kind of worked, but like on the tube, like, come on, she's just... I mean, I suppose for the sake of kind of narrative momentum, you don't always say, well, you want to go down and change the Piccadilly line, go across to you, and then walk across the platform, <laughs> and then you're going to have to wait a bit because there's interrupted service and there's engineering works. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, you I need to streamline. I would have said to Thor, you know, you need to download City Mapper, mate. Like, yeah, it's, just absolutely. It's, like, yeah. It's, at the very saves least, you Google so much Maps. Or get a fucking yeah. Uber, just yeah. honestly, yeah. it's not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> Transport for London site, mate, will sort you out. Yeah, just journey yeah. planner on there, you <laughs> yeah. know. I mean, talking of tubes, I remember first moving to London and getting very excited when I saw Tottenham Court Road tube station for the first time. Why? Because of, you know which film I'm talking about? No. American Werewolf London. That was oh, about to be my guess. Yes, because it looks nothing like that now. Well, yeah, I mean, it's changed quite a, a lot. A little bit, but, just a little um, bit. But, you know, it still has a bit of that, like, you know, if you're going home late at night and you're by yourself in the tube, it has that eeriness where you feel, oh, maybe I'm being chased by a werewolf. That is true. No? All right. Well, I think we've we've successfully demolished that question. Everything else, I'll be honest, guys, you've asked us stuff that involves research or thought. Yeah, I mean, don't be ridiculous. We are not prepared to put in that kind of effort. We, we just don't have the time for that kind of thing. But thank you, uh, Jono, for that question. And if you would like to have your question read out in the Empire podcast and treated with the respect which it deserves, well, maybe just send it preemptively, uh, to be honest, before the panic shout out from myself or Chris uh, with the hashtag Empire podcast. We are, of course, at Empire Magazine on Twitter. Um, and uh, there are other ways of getting in touch, but let's be honest, we never check them. So you're we best don't. going on to Twitter, even though it's a hellscape now. Okay. So time, I think, for a guest. And we have two this week. Uh, I'm going to start off with Amil Amin, who broke through in kid adulthood, um, starred in Yardie as well, and was uh, seen last year, I think, in Boxing Day, which, of course, as a Christmas movie, came in for the Bahamas. I do treatment. enjoy a boxing movie. I mean, there were some punches thrown, as I remember. You know, it was it had some stuff going on. It's also, of course, as as James will no doubt butt in and tell us, he he, he also appeared in I May Destroy You. Very, very talented actor. And this week, he appears in Deadshot, which is a Sky original movie about an IRA man played by Colin Morgan and an SAS sharpshooter who is played by Amin. So we sent Amon Warman along to talk to him just this week. Please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the star of Deadshot, Mr. Melamine. How are you, sir? I'm very happy, man. Very happy and very happy to be speaking to you with your Barry White voice. Like, <laughs> we've done this before yeah. and you've come with the sexy this time. I feel you, bro. <laughs> Look, you know, when, when a Melamine is on the pod, certain, certain things have certain to be things done. Certain things go on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but first of all, congratulations on this film. I have to say, this film has one of the most intense opening scenes I've seen in a long while. What was your initial reaction to seeing the character you play, or reading the character you play rather, shoot a pregnant woman in the first five minutes of this film? <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, yes, I'm gonna play a hated man. Um, no, I, it was, the, the script for me was like, I think it's like 88 pages, really taught, Tight, intense, you know, no time to breathe type of stuff. You know, it reminded me of something quintessentially British, but also quintessentially like 70s, that type of old school filmmaking, mean streets, taxi driver. You're following two characters where you're not sure whose side of the line you're on, especially with Tempest. 
Um, Tempest, you don't really know who he is. He doesn't really know who he is. So I find that compelling. I often play characters that have a particular clarity on trajectory, you know, and with this guy, it was totally different, totally different. You know, I don't even think he feels like he's out for revenge necessarily, you know? That's interesting because, you know, I do a lot of interviews with actors and they all, and a lot of them say, we're always on the character side, no matter what. Are you an actor who thinks that way? And did you find that challenged, if so, with a character like this? Well, as you say, the, the, you don't quite know which side the audience should be on at various points. Yeah, I don't think I'm an actor that's always like, you know, the character's always right. I don't think that. Um, I've got too much of an opinion myself to, to to do that. But with this particular guy, Tempest, I think he's just lost. I mean, Tempest is not even going to be his real name, is it? You know, he's someone that's changed his identity. He's someone in the late 70s, 80s that's not really culturally connected to Black culture necessarily. He's completely abandoned it. After he he, he does this, he shoots this lady and has to go back to family. The only woman, um, the only person he's got is this woman that he is in love with. You know, where's the rest of his family? You know, where's his mother? Where's his father? Is he Black British Caribbean, Black British African? Like, where's the cultural roots? There is none. He's very English. And, you know, he's a sergeant at that particular time. What's he has to, what's he had to do? Who he's had to become to be that type of person? So, these questions kind of I answered them, but yeah, I don't necessarily agree with his way of living. But I, I, I very much empathize with the fact that some people's journey in this life is quite lonely, man, and 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 obsolete. And also, how much you know, without the foundations of family and and friendships and support, um, how isolated you can feel when you're isolated and you long for that human connection. How much you can be stirred down a particular direction. You know, so I, I, I like to explore all those things because it's not something that um, I've done before with a character and, and it's certainly not indicative of uh, my life. I think you touched on it a little bit there, but I wanted to ask you because I read an interview where you said you described your acting style as accidentally method, which I found very interesting. How did that manifest itself on this film with this character, with Tempest? Do you know, with this one, not so much, you know. I mean, it, it's it, the circumstances and the situation leads you to be um, accidentally method, which means you're kind of in the energy of that person. You're kind of in the tonal, you know, if if he's a if he's a, a cello, you're playing the cello. You know, if he you know if he's a violin or piano, you're doing that instrument. So I find myself definitely accidentally method leaning um, because I, t I take on so much information about the person and in between cut and action or in the trailers, I'm constantly thinking about things from that person's point of view. So, yeah, it happens to me. But it wasn't extreme on this one for me. You know, Yardy was a bit more extreme. I just played Martin Luther King. That was more extreme. You know, you, you, I purposely leaned towards that on those particular journeys. But it just happens sometimes, you know. Definitely want to ask you more about that Martin Luther King uh, right. picture. I'm very excited uh, for that film. Uh, but I wanted to ask a little bit more about the directors for this one, Charles and Tom Gard, who I think they said that they were inspired by films like The French Connection and Get Carter. Do you yourself have a favourite revenge thriller that you like to watch? And did you take any inspiration from any of them as you were going up for this film? I watched Heat again. I watched Heat. Um, it's a really well done film. It's because you're just waiting for that moment for De Niro and Pacino to meet. You know what I mean? Um, I watched Heat. I watched a bit. 
I watch more the lonely, isolated journey of like taxi driver. Um, you know, uh, there will be blood. You know, characters that you just don't understand and you don't really get full understanding of them. Even though Tempest is a lot less in charge of himself uh, as Daniel Day-Lewis's character was. But, you know, uh, Travis Beagle, you know, I even chose a coat that was kind of like that because he just don't know himself, man. And I, I find that really a scary notion, you know? And so I kind of lent more towards that. And then was a you know, Scotland um, filming. I didn't really know anybody there myself, you know, so that that lent to that feeling, you know, of being a bit isolated. I didn't travel much. I stayed there. And so these things help through osmosis. Another cool thing about this film is that it's set in the 70s. Um, mm -hmm. I always loved the period details in a film like this, and the period details in this film in particular are great. Was there any favourites that you had in that regard? I've never seen, like I said, I've never seen, but it's been a while since I've seen so many phone booths in the film. Right. And that was a blast from the past. <laughs> it was like, to me, it was a couple of things. It was like the uh, the way they shot the club scenes, of that with that red and that green. My dad owned a club in the 80s and 90s, and I just remember it, that that, that kind of, that, you know, the, uh, the strobe lighting. You know, that was quite nostalgic for me. Um, I thought what they did with, there's a scene with Felicity where she's printing out pictures of Tempest. And uh, I thought that was proper semis. Like she's got the glasses on, it goes into it. I remember this as well, just, just having this memory. My uncle, Emsley, used to take photos and he'd have to print them and it would be at my dad's office. And, you know, you'd put him in the, in the dark room and they'd come to light, you know? Damn that shit. That was, I mean, I'm old enough to remember that, but it's like, yeah, that shit was incredible during that time, you know? So those are the, the things that brought me back to the, the, the nostalgia and definitely the bus, the bus stops. When we did, when, I, when I'm doing that walking thing down London, the London I remember as a kid, you know? I'm always fascinated by this. You're not just working with one director, you're working with two directors. Did you ever <laughs> sort of, how was that experience for you? Did, did, did you go to one director for one thing, another person for another, or they're always simpatico and they're always the basically saying the same thing when you're when you're going to them. They're not always simpatico. No, 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 not always simpatico. Um, it's interesting. It's really interesting. They're very. Um, they discuss quickly. They're like twinish in that way, um, and that was cool. And it made and they didn't, to my memory, didn't have many or if any disagreements. But they definitely had different ideas in different moments, and you have to unify them. And go okay, which which one's which one we're going with for the second? Um, but no, it, they um, they really work well together, man. They really work well together. Um, and as a as a, I remember asking that, that question when I began. I was like, so how is it? Who's like? But they have quite a seamless language together, um, but not always simpatico, and that's that makes for momentary interesting debate between. You and you got three minds on it instead of you know two. Um, yeah, I don't think I could do that as a director. I'm not sure in that shit. Well, I was going to ask you. You recently became a director with Boxing Day a couple of years mm -hmm. ago, and I know that as an actor, you're always learning from set to set and picking up tips. Was, was there any directorial tips that you picked up from from these guys that you're looking to apply in future? They they know this. I mean, they are filmmakers and they know their stuff from a camera point of view. They know their stuff from a cinema point of view. Um, the action pack. My next film that I'm directing that I wrote is has got elements of big action, and so that's something I'm gonna have to 
it's totally new to me. So I'm going to have to get really attuned to that and how that's done and different ways of doing it. And um, my film's also set in different time periods, not just one. And so it's 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 going to be challenging to really establish the aesthetic of each bit and bring it together stylistically for how I want it to be. You, you mentioned earlier Sophia Brown's Ruth. That I, I want to come back to that because, yes, this is an action thriller, but I love that the film made time for that relationship and to give us a little slice of what the Black British culture was like back in the day. Can you talk about working with Sophia Brown and those scenes and, and bringing that to life? Because for me, that... Yeah, no, she, she came in last minute and really just lit this, the film up, man, lit it up with a different dynamic. And she's a really um, instinctive performer and... Um, it was really nice, man. Just really nice. I think because we got along so well so quickly, the friendship. So I really, I really liked. Her. I look forward to seeing more of her work because I didn't, I didn't know her before. But I think you know, I think she's on a good trajectory for sure. Obviously, this takes place in the seventies. What is something that we have in Black British culture now that we don't see a lot of on screen that you wish we would? I think I want to see. I mean, I know Ratman's done some superhero thing, so that's going to be good. Yes. I'm very excited for that. Netflix. Yeah. Pick <laughs> up raps for that. Just big world building, you know? Big world building um, and putting us in those spaces. And to be honest, I actually want to see a lot of the Black British actors that have done so well internationally. Wouldn't it be exciting to see us all in a film? It's like we always wanted to see Will and Denzel in a movie and never quite happened. You know, I would love to see... Um, Black British actors that are, you know, that are doing super well. You know, all of us coming together and, you know, like, like, do you, oh, do you know what would be good? Like an Ocean's Eleven type thing. Yeah. Really yes. You know? Yeah. Put, you know, put all the, the faces that are doing well in this Ocean's Eleven style thing. It's it's modern. Everybody's dressing in like, you know, um, Oswald Botang suits. You know what I mean? <laughs> Dude, why good. are you not writing and directing this right I now? Think I think I am, You inspired the idea, man. Magic has just happened in this room. Right. When I'm it like, comes yo, to pass... Yo, fam, what are you saying on this thing? <laughs> All I ask for is 20% of that. 20%. I think 20. that's reasonable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is that very pointed line in this film that you are a black man in the white man's world, um, which definitely stuck out to me. Um... For you, is that also true of Hollywood? And if so, have you gone about navigating that space as your career has progressed? It'd be unrealistic of me to not look at the business that we're in or, you know, dead shots on Sky and, you know, all the fact that we are quote-unquote minorities in majority countries, you know, like in the West, and say that that hasn't got a great influence over our um, existence and fighting for our space and our particular... Um, our culture, who we are within that framework. But yeah, I don't tend to look at that like that. I don't think I tend to look at like that like that. Hollywood, you know, it's challenging at times, man. You, you, you know, you're navigating a career. What I've done for me, I reckon, is I've become a part of the answer, which is like, okay, if you're making uh, Ocean's Eleven, right, you're going to put one... Thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you're making an Ocean's Eleven, you're putting one guy in there, right? You're putting one representative. Whereas, you know, if you become a writer-director and, and you have, you know, you're using the pen, then you're able to make something that encompasses many people. 
you know and so i like that i like the idea of that and i've become um, i hope i'm becoming a solution oriented person when it comes to that you know what i mean because that would just be dope just that again go back to the ocean's 11 team that would just be dope i don't watch that you know what i mean so 100 percent, me too I know that you've spoken before about splitting time between UK and the US and you're in the UK now. How has that evolved for you over time? And what do you feel needs to happen in the UK arts world, maybe in order to better retain diverse talent and nurture diverse talent here? I think it's happening, man. Like the writers are coming up. I feel like the writers are the new superstars of the business. Like, you know, Kayla Cole and they just did that from Ryan Lane. I think it's happening. Yeah. I think it's just, I think it's happening. You know, I think our culture has become a fascination to the world. And so I think people are engaged and the more things are successful, then the more, you know, people are going to turn their eye to it. You know, I don't know if we'll ever be able to compete in a similar way at it like Hollywood, because it's just a numbers game at that point, right? You're talking about a country of, 300 million versus a country of 60 and, and, and then a London culture. And yeah. So I, I, I don't think the competition is the, is the framework. I think we are retaining and people, I think people are interested in coming back and making stuff. And certainly my generation of people, I, I see them doing the dual moves, you know, making stuff there, becoming, making their name international, you know, and then coming home and making dope stuff. You know, I feel like that's happening. I think we're in it now. I think we're in the 70s of filmmaking in England. You know what I mean? Like when you had George Lucas and George Lucas Spielberg, Scorsese, uh, uh, the Godfather director. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You just had, you know, I think we're in that. In, it's in its own inception. You mentioned they're uh, playing Martin Luther King in mm. Austin. When you get mm -hmm. offered something like that, is it an immediate yes from you or...? Are you, there's certain questions you're asking yourself before you commit to a role like that. You should say yes, isn't it? <laughs> say yes. You say what? <laughs> yes. You say what and yes. That's mm. the two. That's the two <laughs> things. You know. You say what and yes. Um, is there trepidation? Are you? Do you get nervous and fearful? And yeah, you do because it's such a such a mountain to climb, isn't it? It's such a mountain to climb. So yeah, I think you say yes and. Yes, 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 thank God. What, how, and let's see what happens, you know. I've heard that this is the first time that the Eye of a Dream speech is getting to be actually uh, read in the film on screen because up until that point, up until last time, it hadn't been allowed to be. What was that moment like filming that, knowing that? I mean, I guess, is that something you have to sort of divorce and forget about as you're in it? Or are you thinking about that in any way, shape or form as you're performing it? I'm not thinking about that at all. And I think, again, the idea of being method-leaning helps with that because the Mel's mind is quietened. You know, the Mel brain is quietened. And I'm more living in the space of what I imagine through research King's mental space to be in at that moment. You know, I did that scene, I want to say about 30 or 40, I did that uh, speech about 30 to 40 times over two days in my career is probably the greatest to achieve that and to feel it and to be in it and to not be judging myself or just be in it is 
yeah, without without shadow of doubt, the greatest accomplishment of my yeah my, my career as an actor. So excited uh, to watch it. Even more excited to see your Ocean's Eleven film. That's gonna be that's gonna be amazing. <laughs> Me too, man. You might have a cameo. You might have yes. keep your voice like this, though. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No. By the way, I got you. I got you. I'm 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 a work on it. I'm not more working. I'm not working anymore. Uh, another mean. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, brother. See you again, man. All right, that was Emil Amin, and we will be talking about Deadshot in the reviews section a little bit later. But before that, it is time to talk about this week's movie news. Now, obviously, I've referred to perhaps the biggest story of this or any week, the Meg 2 trailer yes. coming out. But um, what, let, well, let's start there. What, what did we think of the Meg 2 trailer? I loved it. I'm, I'm going to start saying Meg in the manner in which you guys say June now. <laughs> Meg! It's, I, I am so, so excited for this film. What is this film? I, I, I truly didn't believe, even, I still don't quite believe it's, it's a thing that exists. I mean, to have a sequel to it in itself is quite funny, but to have a sequel directed by <laughs> Ben fucking Wheatley. I don't ben know. Wheatley. Do you ben think Wheatley. he lost a bet? Like genuinely, like how has this come about? Uh, I mean, would it be losing or winning a bit? I mean, you're, I you, I you know what? Know. This is a valid point. This is a valid point. I confidently, confidently believe that if someone went up to Martin Scorsese with a script for Crank 3, he'd fucking <laughs> jump at it. So I enjoyed that Rook Films, which is his production company, tweeted, from the director of Down Terrace comes yes. the Meg to <laughs> the Trench. Uh, yes, no, I loved the look of this trailer. I thought it was really funny. I mean, it has this hilarious cold open, which set in prehistoric times where there's just some dinosaurs hanging out on the beach and a T-Rex is like, you know, dominating. And then the Meg just eats him whole as if to say, look, this is the biggest dinosaur in the world. You need to be scared of it. And uh, and then it just has Jason Statham ready to punch him in the face, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Shark puncher. Shark puncher. Not just Meg, but Megs. Megs. Yes, Megs. And also other creatures as well, which I'll be honest, I wasn't expecting. I thought this was going to be a shark-focused movie, but we got tentacles. We, we did. Got, we got stuff going on here, there's, man. There's it a has, whole ecosystem. It has the whiff of Sharknado about it, doesn't it? Like, there's there's a hint. There's, a, I mean, I don't <laughs> believe that's what it's going to be because I feel like, like Ben Wheat is in on this joke. Like, there's no way he's oh, not sure. in on this yeah. joke. He like, has he a is sense there. of humor, exactly. And I think he, yeah, I, I, you know, there may be an element of this is, you know, slightly one for them. Like, he's this will fund his next like weirdo low budget horror kind <laughs> I mean, of thing. Knowing the budgets he he uses, probably his next ten low yeah. budget horrors, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, but it, but yes, I think there is a knowing sense of humor to it. I think Statham knows what he's doing as well. He's having fun with it. Like the first one was not a serious film. Yeah. It, there's a there's a sequence where a Yorkshire Terrier is swimming through the water and being pursued by a giant ancient shark. You know, these these are not serious films. Um, and this one, I think, is very much in that vein. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm very excited. I can't can't help myself. It's Jason Statham not just punching one prehistoric shark, but punching many prehistoric sharks and I think we can all agree that that is the direction in which cinema should go yeah, that's right yeah it's, it follows the alien to aliens rules you absolutely know, you just add you just add a plural and indeed yeah. shouldn't it be the Megs too like, Megs the Megs Megs just Megs just Megs Megs Meg harder I don't know yeah Megs doesn't quite have the same menace I guess maybe. not yeah <laughs> two little women <laughs> two women yeah uh, it would be funny if they followed up the Megs with you know the Meg with the Beth the Joe and the Amy. Yeah. Like, that would be pretty, pretty as, as far as spinoffs go, yeah, all of whom died in a hell of blue. Just giant oh prehistoric women. Uh, <laughs> eating men. Marauding yes. women. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, there we go. Okay, here's some news I didn't see coming. Nicolas Cage uh, is going to star opposite Bill Skarsgård in Lords of War. And if you're thinking to yourself, hey, that name is slightly familiar. This is apparently a very belated sequel to Lord of War from 2005, the Andrew Nichol film. Which I spent a week on set of. Yeah, and now it's it's it, we're back. Hang on, so we're, we're, this is getting the Alien to Aliens sequel treatment. He has a son. This is get uh, this is the one that is getting this the is Alien the one to that Aliens plural sequel, sequel, Lords of War. Yeah. Ah, it's absolutely wild. This this is mad because Andrew Nichols is a great filmmaker, and I was on, literally on set of this for a week. So it was independent at the time; didn't have a distributor, and they just flew me out in Cape Town, South Africa, and put me up in an apartment, and I just hung out on the set of this film for a literal week. It was wild. <laughs> And I actually, I mean, this film, I don't think, did a great deal of business. I'm very surprised it's getting a belated sequel. But yeah. it's, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I like the idea of him as this kind of, you know, this arms dealer and how he kind of fits into There's a really great scene in it where he realizes that he's in over his head when someone takes one of his, and shoots someone in the face. And he's shitting himself and he styles it out as a kind of like, he's like, and he freaks out. And the guy like looks at him and he's like, I can't sell a used gun. You know, and he's just like, that's his whole spiel. And what yeah. was really interesting was when I, because they gave me the script when I was on set and I read through the entire script and I really latched onto that scene. And I remember discussing the scene with Cage before he shot it. Oh. And he was talking to me about, I haven't really worked out how I'm going to play it. I was thinking of this and maybe doing that. And he was just talking through, just spitballing ideas of how he was going to play the scene and then watching him then do that. That was wild. Oh, I really wild. enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a great amazing. set visit. Peeking but behind the cage it, it was, it yeah. was. I felt I was inside my inner cage. Interestingly enough, he went shark diving in a cage that very day. Really? Absolutely. Yeah, he was telling cage. me about it. Yeah, he went, it was a cage in a cage and he went shark, he went diving with great white sharks. Amazing. Did he, did he punch any of them? I didn't ask him whether he punched one, but well, I suspect, yeah. you know, he was channeling his inner this is This is why he didn't get the role in the egg. Yeah. That is why. Yeah. You know, Should have punched one. Punch the shark. Um, punch but the this shark. is, look, this is not uh, in production yet. It's up for sale at the Cannes film market, uh, but it does have nickel returning. It does have uh, basically Skarsgård, Bill Skarsgård, playing the sort of long lost son. Mm of Cage's character, Yuri. Uh, so he will be not trying to right his dad's wrongs, but trying to top them. And uh, there's even a story here that they might be going rivals for the same woman as well, which means that somebody is dating way out of his age range. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, that's that's going to be, I guess, an interesting one. I I didn't see that coming. I didn't I, think that was Yeah, I mean, I can't really remember the, the, the original film except for the amazing opening sequence. Do you remember this? It, oh yeah, a, yeah, yeah. The sequence that just follows the life mm. cycle of a bullet. It's great, uh, which I thought was very smart and cool. But um, and the yeah. poster, you remember the poster was Cage's face made up right. of bullets. Yeah, that was really cool. Which is another good one. Yeah, yeah. Um, genuinely, no one has seen this film. I, need, I don't think yeah. I've ever met anyone who has watched. Oh, we've seen it. Well, I mean, I have seen it. Okay, well, yeah, I'll have to go back and watch it again. I think. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah. It's a great performance from him. And Jared Leto's good in it too. What else took your uh, caught your eye this week? I don't know if I haven't listened to the latest podcast yet, so I don't know if you <gasps> talked the, the new uh, Taika Waititi project. Have you talked about this yet? Tell me more. Taika Waititi is adding to his stacked calendar. He, I, I don't know, you know, he's he's got a, a spare half an hour a day in which to work on something else. So he's decided to direct something called. Clara and the Sun. Yes, we actually forgot to talk about this ah. last week. It was last week's news, but okay. we, we failed miserably to talk about it. So this is based on the Kazuo Ishiguro story, is that right? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a novel about a robot girl who is created to prevent teenagers from becoming lonely. And it's a story of how she tries to save a family of humans she lives with from heartbreak. 
So it's kind of the reverse of after Yang. I guess so. Which yeah. was about Yang? a family of humans. Before Yang, yeah. That was yeah, that was a family of humans trying to save their robot boy so they'd be saved from heartbreak. So it's kind of an interesting. So, okay. you know, that sounds interesting. I mean, he's also got, you know, a Star Wars movie, a small matter of a Star Wars movie supposedly happening. We haven't it's heard one much about Star that. Wars movie, John. How long can that take? Ten dollars? <laughs> Come on. Very good. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's supposed to be doing Flash Gordon as well. And he also has, you know, Next Goal Wins, which is out later this year. But I think that's in the that's in done the now, isn't yeah, it? That's it finished. Yeah. He's and he's got some Roald Dahl stuff as well with Netflix, isn't he? Doing like the 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 Oompa Loompa series or something. This is, yeah, yes, I don't know if that's highly anticipated Oompa Loompa series. <laughs> hey, I don't know if Taika is, is into it. There must be a reason. We hope so. Fingers crossed for that. I'm surprised, James, you haven't already trampled all over us to tell us about the most fascinating James news of the week. Well, it depends on which one you would pick. I'm actually going to surprise you and say something you wouldn't think, which is the game night news. And it's oh. cheating because we broke this news. The news was when talking to Rachel McAdams, she was saying that her mum saw game night and was like, you have to do a sequel. So we were like, hey, Rachel McAdams' mum wants game night too. But the best part of this particular story is the fact that Jonathan Goldstein then retweeted that and was like, this is a lot of pressure. So clearly, <laughs> mm-hmm. he is going to bow to the pressure of Mrs. McAdams, and he is gonna he's gonna make Game Night Two. Game Night Two, then, hundred yeah. percent, definitely greenlit, definitely confirmed here because of a throwaway line published yeah. in Empire Magazine. Hundred percent. This is amazing. We news. did it, guys. We did it. <laughs> we, we did, did it. It. Yeah. it is a great. If, if there's anybody out there listening to this podcast who hasn't already seen Game Night, I, I doubt it because we've raved about it so much. But if you are that person, please do go watch Game Night. And if you've already seen it, watch it again just yeah. for the. Oh no! He oh no! He died. died. <laughs> uh, were you? Was it the Arnold news? Is that no, the one? You, it wasn't it's even the that. Other one. Well, okay. Well, I'm going to mention the Arnold news. So Arnold is a new documentary, which is uh, which is coming. Obviously, Fubar, his series is coming up. They said about that the better. But uh, he has Arnold, which is this three part documentary, and kind of the tagline for this is one man, three lives. So I guess it's going to chart his bodybuilding, his acting, and his political career. I am totally up for doing this. We're absolutely going to review it on the Pilot TV podcast. I'm going to make Boyd and Kay watch all three episodes of this. Because it's Arnold, the documentary. Arnold, the documentary. I mean, you know, AD stars doing documentaries is a thing at the moment. We'll be talking about that in the review section. We will. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, and, and it does feel like he's kind of got some stories to tell if, yeah. if he will tell them. Well, that's the question. The question is, will it be sort of a little bit whitewashed of some of the seedier aspects? I don't know. I'll be interested to see. But this drops on Netflix on the 7th of June. So, uh, yeah, June! Uh, yeah, that's exciting stuff. Well, what, tell me, tell me, what is the news that I should have clearly I told you? I thought you would be all excited about the spin-off movie, Bird Box Barcelona. See, I knew this was happening, so I didn't realise this was news. Because this has been, this is, I think, I, I don't well, think this is a, new a, news. Yeah, there's an announcement. Yeah, so hasn't, hasn't it got a date? Or? It has, July, yeah. July 14th. Yeah, so this is, this is, it's a weird spin-off, isn't it? Obviously, my beloved Bird Box starring Sandra Bullock, which was on net, one of Netflix's, uh, Sort of, I think it's actually been one of their most successful original movies. I believe so. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. I may be, if not alone, certainly quite solitary in this particular camp. But I think it's great. So, Bird Box Barcelona means that the aliens oh, yeah. also end up in Spain, and so it's a Spanish language spin-off slash sequel. Yeah. Bird Box Barcelona, which is a lot, a lot of bees for a film title. It's, it's quite pleasingly frankly. alliterative. Bird Box Barcelona. Certainly. Bird Box Barcelona. Are they only going to do spin-offs in places that start with B? Yes. Bird Box Belfast should be. Exciting. Bird Box Brooklyn. Well, Bird Box Belgium? Bird Box Belgrade? I mean, the whole Belgrade. of Belgium. Yeah, all of Bruges right there. Yeah. Bruges. Yeah. Bird yeah, Box okay. Bruges! Oh, Bird Box Bruges. <laughs> Fucking hate Bruges. <laughs> <laughs> I, but genuinely, I implore everyone who has not seen Bird Box, or even if you have, to revisit it or watch Good it for the Lord. first time, because it's great. All right, it's just a, 
quiet place wannabe. But it's okay. brilliant. Anyway, but this one will be directed by Alex and David Pastor and... Yeah, fingers crossed. But there's a sequel. There's a sequel novel to the novel Bird Box. There's a sequel. So, so presumably that's not what this is based on. So, like, there's yeah. a sequel right there. Can we not have like? I mean, it's not an either or. It could be both. Or both. Yeah, you know. Uh, you I mean, know. Bird Box Bruges is now in production. So, <laughs> <laughs> once again, our immense power to greenlight films. Yeah. I, I, I've literally, I have personally spoken to Rachel McAdams' mom, and she was a hundred percent behind Bird Box Bruges happening. Well, there you go. Okay. What and Rachel McAdams' mum wants, she gets. And I'm hearing uh, Rachel McAdams' mum also says the Meg 3 and 4 <laughs> are currently I in production. I heard that too, yeah. yeah. I think she's really keen on those. It's it, Meg M3G. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, I don't know what the fourth one is. Uh, do we know her position on Beetlejuice 2? Uh, you say it three times, Helen, not twice. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that does change things. But it doesn't change the fact that Justin Theroux has signed up to join the cast. Yeah, and, and Jenna Ortega, who will presumably be punching up the script, uh, is coming in to take on the um, Winona Ryder role. Yeah, so this is, it, it's kind of a sequel though, right? It's, so it's not, is she technically... I'm unclear. I'll be character. honest, I don't fully understand what this is. Yeah, so I think, I think Ryder is playing her own role. I think she's still Lydia, but her Wednesday, you know, follower... Jenny Ortega is also going to be in it as so her she's not, daughter. Oh, okay. So she's the daughter of Lydia. Yeah, she's I not actually so. playing Lydia. They're not, I mean, they're not rebooting it. So you're telling me that I really should have actually bothered to read the entire news story and not just scan I, the headline. I mean, you are the editor of the site. I mean, I look, just, look, this is the kind of journalistic integrity I'm not prepared to give you. So, okay. Well, we don't know who he's playing. Because we're not going to read the story, quite no, frankly. We we're do, not no. prepared to. Also, it hasn't been announced who he's playing. That's the actual reason if, that we don't right. know. If we say your name three times, James, do you go away? I do, yes, that's true. I will vanish instantly. <laughs> oh, okay, well, there's something to remember. That's a useful note, John. Uh, say my name five times in the mirror and just see what happens. Okay. Um, say my name, say my name. I, I'm just excited, actually. I, I think Jenny Ortega and Winona Ryder teaming up is instantly yeah. fun. I'm oh, I mean, that. that's that's a, like the goth Avengers, basically, isn't yeah. it? And it kind of is. It's like having played, you know, the young Wednesday and taking over from Christina Ricci there and now playing, you know, Lydia's daughter and sort of taking over from Winona Ryder there. It just feels like she's bringing all our goth 90s girls back to life. Now all I need is for Winona Ryder to take the share role in a Mermaids remake and for her to take... <laughs> Winona's role in that, which I was just watching again the other day. I freaking love that film. Anyway. Will she do the Wednesday dance to the Deo song? That's the question. <gasps> well, now I, I I hear that Rachel McAdams' mum is <laughs> super up for that and really thinks yeah. strongly that that's something that should happen. I feel like a, a banana boat, you know, like musical number needs to happen. <laughs> Fingers crossed. What other news have we got? Uh, I, I will jump in with a news story. And really, I, I like to think of this news story as just a tease for Monday's Pilot TV podcast when I'll be talking about this properly. Yeah. But Brian Johnson's poker face is finally, finally coming to UK shores. Yes. And it's next week. It's next week as we go out. Well, actually, week after next, as Empire goes out, next week as Pilot goes out. Yeah, very excited. It's coming to Sky Mats because obviously it was a Peacock show. And because Peacock no longer really exists here in the UK, it just vanished into the ether. Yeah. And we've been waiting and waiting and waiting, but so it's going to drop on Sky Max and I think all of them are going to drop as a box set, as Sky does sometimes. So you get to watch every single poker face back to back. And while I have, let's be honest, very little patience for those kind of like case of the week procedural things, it's Ryan Johnson. Yeah. It's Natasha Leon. Yeah. By all accounts, it's brilliant. Let's do this thing. Oh, I mean, every every reaction and review I've I've heard about the show has been this is great. This is a really good thing. Yeah. And we hope it continues forever, kind of thing. It's it's Ryan Johnson in whodunit mode. Yes. But it's also, you know, very much built for TV, it sounds like. Uh, As I all mean, the best things are, John. It's one of those things that yeah, they they 
announce the US release and then they just stay very quiet about everything else. And I've, you know, just in my capacity as reviews editor, I've been just like <laughs> desperately begging these random names from across the world, like VP of customer relations for Peacock or something. Say, please let me watch it. I just want to watch it. See, well, I feel the same way about because I'm a massive Anne Rice fan and yeah. Interview the Vampire and the Mayfair Witches have yet to show any hint that they might appear on these shores. It's driving me insane, especially because they gave me Interview the Vampire screeners very early. So I've seen the first episode, but I'm able to watch the rest and I don't know when it's coming. I mean, it's a first world problem, but it's, it's bugging me. It's beyond a first world problem, James. And it's also <laughs> TV. So yes. back here in the movie news world, nice. uh, did you guys watch the Oppenheimer trailer? Yes. So how do you currently stand on your plans for Barbie and Oppenheimer Day? Which one will be your opener and which one your closer? Uh, Who will be judged on the it's answer? It's a good question, isn't mm. it? I don't know. I feel like maybe start with Oppenheimer and then you... You Cheer have up like again. A, you have Barbie. a Barbie chaser, you mm. know, just to like take the edge off. Um, a bit of glitter and, and you know, s- sweet sugar to, we think. to wow. take the, 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 the nuclear medicine go down. I think it's um, a perfect double bill. Yeah. Is I mean, anyway, yeah. but I mean, this is, this is the other film with everyone in it. Like basically everybody, Hollywood got together. They got everybody in a room and half of them signed up to Barbie and the other half signed up to Oppenheimer, Fair, right? Yeah. With Killian Murphy obviously leading Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Benny Safdie, Michael Angarano, George Hartnett, Rami Malek, Kenneth Branagh, Dane DeHaan, Alden Ehrenreich and Matthew Modine. To name but a few. Is anyone in both? I don't believe so. There isn't any crossover there. No. I mean, look, this, this trailer I thought looked really good. But the most interesting thing to me is that they're keeping to that release date. They have not... Blinked. They haven't blinked. They haven't blinked. And it's a really, it's a really weird one for me because maybe, maybe correctly, they think that film nerds like us are all hyped up about this face-off for the ages and everyone else sees no overlap between these two films whatsoever <laughs> and is yeah. only interested in one or other. Yeah. Yeah. It's only the film nerds, maybe. I think you're right. Who are blindingly excited about this. Oh, in my head, it's like Oasis and Blur in the 90s. You know, it's like, who is going to win? I am th- really excited to see, like, what the, what the actual winner is. After, after Super Mario's box office recently, I think Barbie is going to be the box office winner. Yeah. I, I, I 100% agree I with that. 100%. I, think, yes. I think you're probably right. But... I mean, which one's going to sweep the Oscars? That is the genuine question. There was genuinely Oscar buzz for Ryan Gosling as Ken. Now, it came from like one Twitter account, but that's enough for me to start the campaign right here. He's going to be beating off Oscar voters. I, I mean, look, I feel like if, if Ryan Gosling were to win an Oscar for playing Ken in the Barbie movie, I feel like it would bring about world peace and an end to global warming. That's just me, but I feel like that's what what would happen. If you say so. Uh, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm very excited for Oppenheimer, I should say. Like, it does look great from this trailer. Uh, we got a bit more of a sense of, you know, who's, it's, 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 it looks like a kind of Killian Murphy, Matt Damon kind of pairing. And mm. then there's a huge ensemble backing them up. I mean, you see Florence Pugh for like a second in that trailer. Mm. And it's like, before she dies in a hail of bullets. I don't. I think she no, that's, does. That's what happens. Well, that's, Again, well, that's it happened to. It also doesn't happen in Little Women. I cannot stress this enough. <laughs> that is not a thing that happens in Little Women. Don't remember it in the trailer, but I'm, I'll, I'll need to double check. But um, yeah, I mean, it's. It, 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 I just thought that's illustrative of how like starry this film is that they have like one of the biggest stars in the world right now, and they're just like, oh yeah, we. Yeah. Just sneak uh, she's her in it too. No yeah. big deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, she was busy with her other film, 
Little Women. Her other film, Jake. Oh June! <laughs> set them up for you. I know. And you just like... I know. She, <laughs> amazingly, she does not die in a hell of bullets in June. That we know Mainly because they don't really use ballistic weapons an awful lot well, because exactly. you don't have personal shielding. Exactly, so they're more, yeah. It's more of a melee-based combat. Anyway, uh, eaten by a worm is what happens. But yeah, <laughs> So what do we think? We think Oppenheimer? We're looking forward to it more than Barbie? Do we think it's going to more than Barbie. bomb? Not, look, oh, God. I don't, <sighs> I don't think it's going to bomb. Neither do I think it's necessarily going to blow up the box office. <laughs> maybe it's mutually assured destruction. Yes. <laughs> like maybe they will just destroy each other yeah. in, in a nuclear winter. All other films over. will flee that week because... It will be radioactive or, I don't know, anyway. Yeah. Any other news? <laughs> well, we should uh, perhaps mention that the Writers' Strike, the Writers' Guild of America, yes. is ongoing. Um, there have been a few more clarifications, uh, emerging bits and pieces this week. Tony Gilroy clarified that he has done nothing on Andor since the, since the strike began. He has mm. not been producing. Obviously, he hadn't been writing, but he also hasn't been producing. He also hasn't been going to the set. We've seen a lot of celebrities, of actors and so on, yeah. joining the ranks of the strikers. We've heard some noises from the DGA about their own negotiations with the studios. There is certainly no sign of the writer's resolve weakening, if anything, quite the opposite. It feels like the... What's, what is the acronym for the... Amptipa? That's the one. It feels like they've kind of dug in a little bit, which which stream, seems to me ill-advised. Like, like you can't help thinking that they're going to have to blink and they'd save themselves so much money if they just did the blinking now. Like, why why draw this well, out? Well, they're, they're obviously aware that where the writers lead, the DGA and SAG will mm -hmm. follow and indeed all the other unions as well. And so I feel like they think that if they can break this one strike that they can save themselves some money in the long term. But honestly, given the relative modesty of the writer's demands uh, and, and the fact that historically the DGA and SAG have been a little bit more conciliatory in their negotiations, I, I feel like, you know, the momentum is still very much with the writers here. And, and rightly, in my view, so, because uh, they have honour and dignity. And 100%, yeah righteousness on their side. So, so yeah, it's been good to see everybody very much sticking to their guns. And, and a lot of threads this week, if you look for the WGA strong hashtag or things like that on Twitter, um, a lot of threads from writers explaining just what the problems are, just why these, these arguments matter to them. Yes. And just how badly writers who've written on some of your favourite shows and, and movies have been treated by the system currently. Well, yeah, an interesting one that's come up a lot in the negotiations is this idea of a small writer's room. Yeah. This is more of a TV than a film issue. But the idea is, and what that means and why this is bad. And I think generally speaking, someone, and forgive me, I've forgotten his name, it's a screenwriter, went and did a video explaining why that is. That traditionally what would happen is that, uh, you know, a showrunner would come in, they'd get a script written for a pilot, it would get picked up to season, then they'd put together a writer's room and they'd hire experienced writers, the expensive ones, they'd hire some mid-level writers, and they'd hire some entry-level writers who are going to learn their craft and be the future of the industry. And the, the trend is moving towards this idea that instead of, greenlighting something, they'll say, okay, we like this pilot, write a few more. Here's a really small budget to do that with. So then the showrunner has to put together a really tiny writer's room with maybe only a few writers and they only hire the experienced writers because frankly, there's an awful lot at stake, which means that these younger writers don't even get a foot in the door. But more importantly, those experienced writers have to work for a fraction of their rate because 
this show isn't necessarily going to series. But as as was pointed out, it doesn't matter what you do with the show. It takes exactly the same amount of brain power and time to create the show. So why are you paying them a pitiful amount to do it? Mm-hmm. So it feels just massively exploitative in a way of, of you know, frank, frankly, just getting something for nothing. It also feels like uh, something that may have very deleterious effects on what we watch. So for example, one story I saw was somebody who had had to spend four weeks in the writer's room breaking 10 episodes. So figuring out the plot for 10 different episodes. But then the writer's room had been dissolved and all the people who were in it, the small number of people who were in it, were sent off to essentially write an episode each. Mm. But as freelancers. So they were just going to be paid for the script that they turned in and it might take months for them to be paid that money. And then there wasn't that same collegiality. There wasn't that chance to go back and forth to discuss things. And that means that we're going to see you know, TV shows, for example, with less connective tissue, issue episode to episode, mm. we're going to see less continuity. We're going to see less character growth, less coherent plotting. Because I'm sure the the showrunner then takes those those and rewrites them and tries to tie them together. But you're still not going to have the level of connection and and you know consistency across the board that you would have if those people were in a freaking proper writers' room working together as an actual team. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it, look. I get that the studios just want to cut costs because capitalism, but like, come on, people, like, it can't just be about putting money in the in the pockets of the already rich. You've also got to feed the people who actually make the product. Yeah. Literally feed them. Yeah. Sometimes. Anyway, so obviously we're com- entirely neutral on this and have no strong opinions on the rights and wrongs of the writers' strike, but hashtag WGA strong, as far as I'm concerned. Indeed, and, yeah. uh, that brings me on to uh, some other great work by writers this week. The new issue of Empire. Pay the writers. Out. <laughs> Pay us, please. <laughs> We're on strike. We're not, Pay we're our not on strike, but, but, but please buy our magazine. Yes. <laughs> yes, please. This is this is a this is a very exciting one. This one is, of course, centered around Secret Invasion, the MCU show about what Nick Fury did uh, while we haven't been watching. And it turns out he's been fighting with shapeshifters, uh, which is exciting. So we're, we're talking Parallax View, we're talking Paranoia, we're talking 70s Thriller, and we're talking Samuel L. Jackson wearing great coats while fighting bad guys. We've got the entire story on that. We also have our exclusive report from Star Wars Celebration. Uh, with lots of beautiful pictures. Lots of gorgeous pictures. We basically set up a photo studio backstage and, and essentially kidnapped everyone as they came off yeah. Yeah. Uh, their panels and uh, and dragged them to an undisclosed location and, and forced them to be pretty. So <laughs> uh, it looks fantastic, but we also got a little bit of, uh, of info on what's coming from the Star Wars universe. Uh, so that was exciting. We also talked to Michael J. Fox as his movie Still, a Michael J. Fox movie, comes out this week. We look ahead at the amazing... Uh, Finnish film Sisu, which uh, I saw yesterday. It's like, what if John Wick was taking apart Nazis? And the answer is, yay. Uh, and we have a look <laughs> back at The Fugitive, among others. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, he John, had a mechanical arm! John, tell me about your section. You've got uh, reviews this week. Is a mixed bunch. It's of some a mixed very... bunch. I'm trying to think. What I, There's a 120-word review of the old man movie Blacktopolis, <laughs> if you want to read my take on that. We Bo is Afraid, I think, is our lead review, which we'll be talking about on the podcast, or someone will be talking about the podcast next week. And Good luck summing that one up in a sense. Yeah, I, I mean, I had 500 words and I struggled, to yeah. be honest. It's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a hell of a thing. Uh, yeah, there's some good films out this month, though, right? Yeah, we've got uh, Are You There, God? It's me, Marco. Oh, 
Fantastic. We've got The Master Gardener, yeah. Fatal Attraction, if you're interested in TV, which of course is something that James does in his other job. Lots in there. In uh, We also have uh, Chris uh, talking to Macquarie about uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. We do have the aforementioned Rachel McAdams interview. We've yes. got um, Sam Hargrave talking about Extraction 2 and why he set Chris Hemsworth on fire. It turns out it's not to check if he's really Thor, which is a bit um, upsetting. Andy Garcia does Pint of Milk. We've also got in the review section, we've got Sam Neill. Do you see? There we go. We obviously have an Event Horizon joke on the contents page. We've got Tetris, uh, John S. Baird talking us through that. And we've got the M. Night Shyamalan ranking. So that is the new issue of Empire on sale now in all good and evil news agents. Get after it or regret it forever. All right, time, I think, for another interview. And I'm very excited this week. We have uh, an interview with a four-time Oscar winner. And one of the more, I think, you know, modest, reasonable, normal four-time Oscar winners uh, that's out there. Nick Barkford is he, is the the man behind Ardman Animation. Um, And he joined Chris this week to talk about the fact that it is 30 years of The Wrong Trousers. It's 30 years since we first saw the Wallace and Gromit movie, The Wrong Trousers. One of the all-time funniest animated movies in my money. I think it is uh, an incredible, incredible heist movie. Uh, an incredible comedy and still has one of the greatest train sequences, train chases ever yeah. put on film. So good. Amazing, amazing film. Uh, so yes, please enjoy Nick Park talking trousers. Just jumping in, we forgot to say that this Nick Park interview is in fact just an excerpt from a longer interview that you will get to hear in full next week in a full Nick Park interview special. That's it from me. Subscribe to the Pilot TV podcast. Here's Nick Park. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast to celebrate, and I can't believe I'm saying these words, the 30th anniversary of The Wrong Trousers by the great Nick Park. How are you, Nick? Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm not bad, thanks, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Can't believe it's 30 years. It blew my mind, honestly, uh, yeah. when the uh, opportunity of, of, of talking to you was first broached. Uh, for this anniversary, uh, the the PR I was dealing with said, "Oh yeah, it's for the thirtieth anniversary of the Wrong Trousers," and I I genuinely thought there was a typo. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, yeah, I, I I know what you mean. I mean, it's uh, it was always strange for me to to suddenly have people, young people, who were in their teens, coming up to me and saying, "Oh, I I grew up with," oh now it's people in their twenties, you know, saying they grew up with Wallace and Gromit, and I always. I still think it was kind of yesterday when we made it. Um, yeah, because I because I was wondering about what, what what how how the passage of time feels for a stop motion animator. I mean, do you do you perceive time in a different way to everyone else? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> probably. I mean, uh, I know it's uh, it's the uh, it's the thing that people often say. You know, it takes so long. You know, needs such a lot of patience. It's, I guess it's true. You know, there's a kind of monastic feel to to the fact that you're locked in a, a space you know with a usually in the dark with a few lights and only achieving a couple of seconds a day or whatever but you tend you learn to think like that you know that two seconds can be a heck of an achievement if it's some really nice bit of acting uh, you know that you've achieved so it can you know it can be very satisfying to do that much a day absolutely but it's interesting when you say there about 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 time and how people perceive that stop motion animation is is shot for and is shot obviously very meticulously and it takes a long long time. But I was I was looking at the gaps between your Wallace and Gromit shorts, and mm. it's interesting. There's uh, obviously 
a grand day out is this personal pet project of yours that you that you're doing pretty much in your in your spare time uh, as well takes mm. years to make comes out 1990 within 3 years you've made this movie so what changed what accelerated the process for you on on the wrong trousers yeah well i guess it was starting at Ardman because i a grand day out was half of it was well it was it was a national film and tv school production it was my student graduation film at the national film and tv school it, it took me far longer to it just to do the first uh, you know i remember, I, remember um, I started at film school shooting uh, the whole of wallace and gromit building the rocket in the basement and then i looked at the script and think oh boy i've been six months a year on this how much have i achieved off the script and it was half a page of the script it said there is now follows a sequence where Wallace and Gromit build a rocket <laughs> and that's what I've done <laughs> and it's a 20-page script so um, yeah but anyway uh, Ardman offered me work when I ran out, ran out of time at film school and so then it, I was working part-time uh, Ardman gave me um, a corner of the studio and all kind of um, curtained off and they said finish your film here and we'll help you if you need help uh, but because I was part time on it, uh, I, you know, I was pulled off all the time on TV commercials, or, you know, the sledgehammer video, things like that. Exciting projects. And when I got time in between, I'd keep going. And so it took me about another four years to finish. <laughs> Which is crazy. Yeah, but that's the difference, Chris. It was um, suddenly, you know, the I think Channel 4 bought it to start with. And then um, Alan Yentob, I remember meeting with Alan Yentob at the BBC and he uh, said, "Would you like to make another one, but for the BBC?" And I was, I was already, you know, really wanting that. So uh, had ideas in mind. So it was a, that was a, a real break then to actually make it proper with a proper budget and everything, uh, and to write a proper story. You know, that's that's when I, I met. Um, that's when I met Bob Baker, the writer. Yeah, because uh, did that help as well? Obviously, this is a, and then a full on. Artman production, and that must help as well in terms of getting something this complex made in the in the in a relatively short space of time, just three years between Grand Day Out and the Wrong Trousers. So something you're throwing all the resources of Artman at it as well. Yeah, that's right. It was, and and you know, had all, all these uh, amazingly talented people on the lighting side, the model making. I was doing it all myself before, more or less, ninety nine percent. Um, as, as from a student to a guy doing it in his spare time. Um, so, yeah, I had access to model makers, set builders, set designers, art, art direction, camera, lighting camera guys, um, every, animators. Well, it was still a very small crew, though, I must say, on wrong trousers. Um, there were two of us, me and Steve Box, animated the whole thing with a bit of help from Peter Lord. And um, one or two other animators came in for a day or two. But uh, we we did fifty uh, percent each, really. Steve mainly focusing on uh, Feathers McGraw, the penguin, and I was at that time, you know, I was the only person who'd done Wallace and Gromit, so I was quite protective of the character. But Steve did did do some animation on Wallace and Gromit. So presumably, you you know the moments when you weren't animating Wallace and Gromit when you watch The Wrong Trousers again. Can you tell when it's you and when it's Steve? Yeah, I can. And, and well, we chose that Steve because Steve hadn't done Wallace speaking before 
And at that point, now we have a like a system uh, where we have replacement mouths for Wallace. And that means that any animator can do it without the style changing because it was still plasticine or, or clay. And uh, so it would evolve if, into somebody else's style. That, that's the danger. And at that point, so I stuck to all the lip sync stuff. I did some of, I did any of the Penguin uh, Feathers McGraw shots when he came into a Wallace or a Gromit shot. Because so, there, there can only be one animator on the set animating. So. It's incredible to, incredible to me how you do what you do. And when you are coming at this, I mean, this is not to say that a grand day out isn't ambitious and complex because, my God, it is. But when you're coming to this, was was there a specific urge or desire on your part to increase the ambition of what you were able to do and the complexity of what you were able to pull off? Um, kind, yes, it was very... Um... Yeah, yeah, very ambitious. I mean, sorry, yeah, the whole thing was a sort of exponential curve upwards, really, a, a big learning curve. And um, the very, you know, from the beginning, uh, I, I say this at the same time, it, because we were all hands on, you know, we've done a lot of work, you know, on animation ourselves, each of us, um, in uh, different capacities, we came from a very hands on approach. And so even the script would be written, it, I knew what would be too ambitious and what wasn't um, in terms of what was it. I don't mean ambitious. We wanted to be ambitious creatively, but it was very kind of analog, old school, you know, pre-digital. And we knew what could be achieved. And yet we wanted to push it at the same time uh, to, to kind of get further with it. And that was always my ambitious ambition with Wallace and Gromit because I've been brought up on you know puppet animation being very much for kids you know uh, five minutes before the news or or whatever it was a Eastern European film on BBC2 and it very tended to come from very much the stage uh, puppet show sort of tradition shot in a you know everything shot in one direction whereas I wanted to expand into more of a movie sort of feel where you could um, look one way have one character looking one way they could turn around and you could have a shot you build a set for looking the other way so wanted to more make it immersive and kind of three-dimensional in that sense and more more like a movie um which i'd never seen really you know stop motion done like that before so. yeah i mean it had a, an incredible and profound impact i think i think this this one in particular really i i think put wallace and gromit into the public consciousness. I think one of the reasons why I thought the 30th anniversary thing took me by surprise was that paradoxically, Wallace and Gromit, it feels like this, the, that the that the wrong trousers came out yesterday, but it also feels like they've been with us forever. Right. Now, was that, was that in a way what you were aiming for when you first came up with them? Did you recognize in them the timelessness of these characters? I don't know if I really did actually. I think it was just that kind of uh, confidence of youth, really, you know, that you don't really, not too self-conscious about things in that way. You know, just wanted to make a good film and uh, had a funny idea and let's go for it sort of thing. And, you know, I had a great crew who was totally on board and, and saw it. And I think it was very much led by that, really. And, I, I mean, I'd never... Uh, you know, Grand Out, I always think of it, it was very much a student film and 
kind of whimsical. I didn't really know a lot about structure and, you know, story structure and character arcs and stuff. I didn't pay much attention at college. Um, I, I was more just uh, wanting to animate things that were funny and, and imaginative. Uh, so when Bob and I sat down, I first actually worked with a lovely um, chap from the Kaleidoscope, Radio 4 Kaleidoscope programme, Brian Sibley, and kicked ideas around with him. And and then uh, things couldn't work out because our timing was was not good and, you know, in terms of availability. So, and then so I had to look for someone else and was introduced to Bob Baker, and, and a writer who'd worked on Doctor Who and stuff in, from Bristol. We hit it off really well and, and he I, I present I came along with these mad ideas of penguins and um staying at Wallace and Gromit's house there was many penguins at one point and um the, this pair of trousers that go wrong <laughs> uh, but I wasn't sure quite how it all could quite fit together and, and we it didn't take long really I remember Peter Lord saying to me because I had all these antics which were quite Tex Avery kind of Warner Brothers uh, Tom and Jerry style stuff of a penguin, you know, like messing around with domestic uh, objects, you know, like a hoover or a food mixer. And I did lots, I keep sketchbooks and presented all this stuff. Um, and uh, soon, yeah, I remember Peter Lord saying, what what if uh, this lodger was up to something, you know, nefarious, and we don't know what he's up to. And, and that really set us going in that direction of making feathers a villain, because it was just a, it was just more like um, an annoying nephew staying at, <laughs> at first uh, in the very early days. So at one point there was lots of penguins as well, so it wasn't just feathers. Yeah, that was an idea that came before I was at film school even, actually. I was at Sheffield Art School, which was back then, you know, part of the poly. Um, and um, I used to, me and my flatmate would be trying to think of ways to earn money as students and I kept, we were thinking of these like kids' book ideas that could be published and, uh, that never happened. And, and one of these ideas that I was working on was a, an actual illustrated book of Wallace and Gromit. This was way before anything was filmed um, and, and even applied to film school, really. And I had this idea about how all these penguins, it was a, penguins don't live in the north, but it was a cold winter and all these penguins were, were uh, migrating south. And, and came to stay at Wallace and Gromit's house, a whole a whole giant flock of them. Amazing. Remember Pete and Dave pointing out how maybe uh, one penguin might be a bit cheaper than <laughs> 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 a whole flock. Yeah, precisely. But now, now, given that you know you have you know bigger budgets and you know the the, the mm. you know the might of the BBC and funding it mm. and, and whatnot, would you have done more penguins? Uh, if you were making the wrong trousers too, or remaking the wrong trousers today, would you go for would you go for a full 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 bore with all the penguins? Well, no. I mean, it's, it's I mean, I, I do think often you can be given so much rope. You know, it can be you know uh, bad you know to hang yourself. You can it can be bad for you, and it's a certain discipline. I think that often is the the kind of seedbed for for, for how ideas really develop in, in a more mature kind of a stronger you know. I, I, I do believe that uh, uh, simple is usually strong. And, and if you just give in the whole world, it can start to get kind of weak and baggy in places. 
uh, you know, if you've got too much choice, you've got to be quiet. If you do, you have to be very disciplined, even more with it, uh, for like how to focus the ideas. And also, we, we realised, because after there was chance, after the wrong trousers, there was lots of spin-off-y type ideas being kind of encouraged. And I remember sitting with Bob and thinking, oh, mate, what, what could arrive next at Wallace and Comet's house? I mean, we ended up with Sean the Sheep in the end, which was turned out well. But um, we were thinking another penguin is uh, some another. But the thing is, feathers is a one-off. All right, time now for some reviews. And it's a it's a weird week, this, because it is um, quiet in the cinemas because everybody's running afraid of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Yeah. Um, so we only have one cinema release, and that is Book Club, the next chapter, which I referred to <laughs> at the beginning of this show. Now, this is, of course, a sequel to Book Club from 2018. I know you're both huge fans. Oh, well, of the whole Jerry Antics genre, which is a subgenre that I'm trying to make happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be fair, it is that is a good word. It you, is a well good done. word. Yeah, that is, I mean, um, yeah. Well I done. have to say, I did not know there was a, f- a book club movie already. Like, I didn't, this is a sequel to a film I've never heard of. Yeah, um, why isn't it called book clubs? Yeah, I know they they haven't followed the aliens ranking <laughs> or books at all. club. Books, books club. club, yes, Ooh, like courts martial. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, okay, so let me explain for you. Okay. Uh, this is four friends who are played by Jane Fonda, Diane Keaton, Candice Bergen, and Mary Steenburgen. So far, it sounds like a remake of Eighty for Brady, or was Eighty for Brady a remake of Book Club? I don't, Eighty I for Brady was, I guess, a remake of Book Club, but it's with Jane Fonda and her other friends. Right. So she has two groups of friends. <laughs> okay. And this is the other one. But yes, so it, it is basically in the first film, they all started reading uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and it shook them to their core, my goodness. <laughs> and it shook up their love lives and it shook up their relationships. And that's where we left them. Um, so we now In come a red back. room of pain. No, I mean, in fairness, like they didn't go that far. They did, you know, but it got them hot under the collar, collar a little bit. We now rejoin them. Obviously, the pandemic has happened. There's actually a very good montage at the beginning of this to sort of show how they all weathered the pandemic in a way that is, I thought, quite relatable and quite quite well well put together. And then basically because Jane Fonda's character, who is this kind of hard-living, hard-partying, man-eating hotel owner, finally gets engaged to her boyfriend, Don Johnson, they decide to go on a sort of bachelorette trip to Italy. They've always planned to go to Italy and for one reason or another, it didn't happen, but now it's going to happen. And they go on this trip and like, very, very little really goes wrong and very, very little really <laughs> happens, but they have a lovely time anyway. That's do, basically... Do they the read any books at any point? They, they do. Like So in that opening montage, you see them reading all these books during okay. lockdown, the, the kind of books everybody was reading. But one of the ones that they kind of really chime with is The Alchemist, the Paul Coelho book. So, so that's kind of the reference point for this to the extent that there is a reference point. <laughs> okay. But it's more that they just mention some books in passing. Yeah. Um, so this is once again directed by Bill Holderman, who came up working with, with Robert Redford as a sort of assistant and then made his way into writing, producing, and now directing with these two films. And I think it is a step up from the first book club. I thought it was funnier. I thought it was sharper than the first one. That's not to say it's super funny or super sharp, but it's, it's definitely better. But at the same time, it's not like going to change your life. You know, it's, yeah. it's just a very gentle nice comedy about a group of older ladies having a nice time basically is it, is it it strikes me as the sort of film you would take your mum to see or 
that yeah. your mum would just go. That your mum would just go to see with a bunch of her watch friends. I mean, she might go mm. with her own book club. That's probably right. the genius of the title. Like maybe that is is what it's aimed at. But it is the kind of film that feels like it was designed to be watched with a glass of wine in hand. So there is there's kind of a montage here when they're in Rome and they go to a bunch of art galleries and they make funny comments about all the naked statues. You know, and, and so so really highbrow humor. It's it's not exactly cutting edge stuff, but it's quite well done because these are all you know actresses and actors indeed who could do this stuff in their sleep. And maybe they are. <laughs> yeah. And maybe that's okay <laughs> at that age, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, look, it exists. I gave it three stars. I really went back and forth on the star rating. Yeah. You know, recommendation feels strong, but so does don't see it. That also feels strong. I feel like see it if you're the kind of person who's going to like it. Otherwise, just, you know, get on with your life. Go to Italy, maybe. <laughs> just go and have a holiday in Italy. Everything else that we're about to discuss is on streaming. Shall we start with Deadshot, given that we had a Malamine on the... Shall we start with before? Deadshot, a.k.a. Borderland, a.k.a. Deadshot? It is called One of These Two Things. On the Sky side, it is called Deadshot. On IMDb, it is called Borderland, original title, colon, Deadshot. But it's a film, and frankly, neither one of these titles make any sense. So actually, pick one. It's absolutely fine. And it has nothing to do with the DC character Deadshot. It has nothing to do nothing, with the DC no. character Deadshot. No, no, none whatsoever. So okay. this takes place in the 1970s. This, despite having an, an aggressively 1980s synth score. Uh, but this stars uh, Emil Amin as Tempest, and he's a British army soldier. And there is a point where he is stationed in Northern Ireland, and he is trying to take down an IRA member, played by Colin Morgan, and ultimately ends up killing Colin Morgan's character's pregnant girlfriend. and Wife? Wife, his pregnant yeah. wife. Sorry, sorry. Apologies. And sorry, Colin Morgan's character, just to be clear, is Michael O'Hara. Indeed. So, no related to Helen. No. And uh, so, when Helen's cousin's no. wife is killed, <laughs> he goes to Helen's house to recuperate. Uh, uh, and meanwhile, meanwhile, Tempest is moved back to, to the UK in disgrace to avoid, a, frankly, a murder charge for having just shot a pregnant woman in the face. Uh, and he starts working for Mark Strong's character, hunting down IRA terrorists on the mainland. Meanwhile, yes, Colin Morgan leaves Helen's mum's house to go hey. to cross the, the, you know, the channel to go to, not channel, what's it called? The Irish, Irish cross the Irish Sea to go to London to get some revenge and take down Tempest. And you have this kind of now cat and mouse game in 1970s London. So it's fine. Like, the film is okay. I, I found it difficult to invest, or I should probably say, and I think this is to, to the film's, you know, credit is maybe not the word I'm looking for, but it's definitely by design that you don't really know at any point during this film, even up until the end, who it is you're rooting for. So are you rooting for the IRA bomber who lost his wife? A little bit. Are you rooting for the British soldier who's hunting terrorists but shot a pregnant woman in the face and showed, so far as I can tell, very little remorse for most of this film? And so I struggled to sympathise with either of them. It's also, I have to say, a relentlessly dour film. I don't think, you know, every film needs to be leavened with comedy, but this is very almost oppressively downbeat. Like, it's extremely maudlin. As I say, it has this sort of weirdly chosen grating 80s synth score. And I think it adds to this very, very heavy mood that sort of weighs upon you all the way through. And I didn't struggle to get to the end of it, but let's just say I was quite gratified that it was only 90 minutes long. So, Ellen, we discussed this before the podcast started, mm. and I was saying, you know, I didn't have anyone to root for, and you thought it was very much to this film's credit that it chose that route, that it decides to be kind of morally ambiguous, right? Yeah, because... Okay, like Colin Morgan is a terrorist, but as we meet him at the beginning of the film, he's actually left the IRA to be with his wife and, and now baby. He wants to be a father and he wants to kind of get out of that violent way of life. 
And then he has to get into it and he's pressured to do some of the stuff he does in the film as the IRA's price of helping him get revenge on the, the man who yeah. you know, killed his wife. So, you know, he's not a sort of uh, fanatic in the in the traditional sense. He's not uh, he's not completely immune to the the price and the value of human life. Mm. And at the same time, I, I think there is some remorse from Tempest. I think you do see that he is shaken up by this, and I think it, that you do see that he's he, he's kind of struggling to figure out, you know, his next steps, and it, that he is pressurized into doing what he does for Mark Strong's character. That, well, that's that's certainly true. Yeah. So you've got both of these people being sort of reluctant soldiers who are forced into a position that they don't want to be in, and I think that's an interesting way to approach, you know, a very messy, muddy gross conflict you know this isn't good guys and bad guys this isn't you know sort of patriot games this is a lot more nuanced than that and and i think that was to the film's credit and the guard brothers yeah. who directed this i think it's charles and thomas charles and thomas god who wrote and directed yeah um you know i think i think there's real sort of there's real sort of nuance and real uh, intelligence in that approach not giving us a hero quote-unquote hero in this film i guess the closest we get is felicity jones's character who's kind of in a complicated position in the middle. That's also, an understatement. <laughs> also very unsympathetic in some ways, but ultimately perhaps misled mm. rather than, you know, absolutely morally grotesque. Quite, quite a small role for her. I was quite surprised to see her yeah. in a role that it felt like she's at a place in her career where you would see her playing a more substantial role in a film like this. Yeah. It was, uh, it was I felt she was fun. a bit underserved by this. But look, like I say, I didn't I didn't dislike it. I I'm I think it it, you know, it's a morally grey sort of politically nuanced treatment of, one would say, a morally grey and politically nuanced situation with core of human drama, right? Like, so it's, it, it's made personal, even though it's dealing with larger political issues. And I think they obviously understand what they're writing about, but it just, it just didn't seize me for one reason or another, Fair I'm enough. sorry to say, regardless of whether it is in fact a dead shot or a borderland. Okay, so what would you give this? What would I give this? I would probably give this three stars, I would say. I do not know if we have an official Empire review. I don't believe we, we do. We so do not. We do not have an official Empire review. Well, then I have just given it three stars. Okay. Mm. There we go. I would tend to concur with that. I thought it was interestingly done, but maybe didn't quite jump off the page, if you like, in, in the way that I hoped. But, yeah. but I mean, you know, a far cry above some of the Sky Originals we've watched. Um, so an interesting one from them. Next, on Apple TV, we have still a Michael J. Fox movie. Tell me about this, John. Yeah, this is, I mean, you know, the title gives you a sense of away, what yeah. kind of movie it is. It is a Michael J. Fox movie in the sense that it is a documentary about Michael J. Fox. The, I mean, yeah, the Michael no J. Fox yeah. inter introduction, the star of Back to the Future and many other things. Uh, and this is kind of, this is kind of doing two things, really. It's a documentary about his sort of rise to stardom in Hollywood, how he became one of the biggest names in Hollywood. And you forget sometimes because he's sort of been out of the picture a little while, like in the 80s and early 90s, he was hot stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. he was maybe the biggest thing in, in the world. Uh, there's a great scene where um, he was cast for the sitcom Family Ties, which was his big like breakthrough. And one of the producers wanted to um, fire him because they thought he was too short. And, he's, and they said, that guy will never be on a lunchbox. And obviously... He was on many lunchboxes. Many, many lunchboxes. And Michael J. Fox sent him a lunchbox uh, <laughs> a little while later with his face on it. Because he was. He was a pop culture icon. Yeah. He was absolutely massive. And so you get a little insight into what it's like to be in the eye of that storm. The secret of his success, if you will. Very hey. nicely done, yes. That's really interesting. And that in itself probably would make a compelling enough documentary. But obviously, 
there is another side to his life, which is that he was diagnosed with Parkinson's uh, at quite a young age. I think really like young 29, age, yeah. I think yeah. he was, which is much younger than most people get diagnosed with that disease. And obviously it's incredibly debilitating, mm. completely life-changing. The film opens with him. It's set, I think the film opens in like 1990 when he first gets a tremor, when he first gets a little twitch in one of his fingers and sort of tracks how that goes. And the way it does, it does this, David Guggenheim directed this film and he does it in such an interesting and sort mm. of creative way. He uses a, a mixture of talking heads. So he's got lots of interviews with Michael J. Fox and his family. You know, there's, there's hours and hours of chats that they've drawn from. But there's also um, archive footage. So they get actual clips from Michael J. Fox's movies. And TV shows. And, and TV well, shows yeah. and weave them in. And, and weave them in in a sense of like, almost as if that is Michael J. Fox saying it rather than his characters. It's mm. really wittily done. I mean, some of those so clips clever, are yeah. so, so cleverly used. And also there's like some dramatizations with actors playing Michael J. Fox. So there's, there's all this, sort of, there's a sort of collage quality to it, which is really, really clever and really engaging. And it keeps it sort of sharp and interesting and mm. dynamic. So that makes it really watchable. Like it's yeah. a very pacey film. It's very funny. I think the best thing about it really is it's Michael J. Fox. You get yeah. to hang out with him for a yeah. couple of hours. And it feels like he's being very honest in the film as well. So, so yeah. uh, Davis Guggenheim, if people don't know, directed An Inconvenient Truth, among others. Um, but he's also married to Elizabeth Shue, who of course starred in the two Back to the Future sequels. Yes. So I imagine they know each other socially. I don't <laughs> know, but I imagine that they do. But certainly they feel like they're very comfortable together. Yeah. Michael J. Fox seems quite at ease with him. And and I think that, you know, that adds to the sense that you're getting something honest. And he's not, you know, he's he's quite unsparing at times about his own behavior in the past, yeah. about things, mistakes that he's made and things that he regrets. Uh, and so it doesn't feel like hagiography. It doesn't feel like right. um, he's so great and everything I did was, was perfect. Oh, he talks a lot about how as a young man, he was kind of driven by fear, right? Mm. He was very insecure and he was outwardly very confident and cocksure and, you know, witty. And inside he was just frightened, just a mm. frightened kid. And that's, you know, exacerbated by this condition. And he's very bracingly honest about it. Mm. I mean, he's, he's very funny. It's, it's, it's not a serious film, even though there's a lot of serious subject matter. Like he's always like sort of undercutting himself and yeah. Every line of his, even in his current condition, you know, he's a, he's a bit older and he's, he's not a, as healthy as he once was, but he's still like making jokes about himself. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just really good to spend some time with him, you know, and just sort of get to know him and his life and, and you know, how he's, how, what he's been up to. Basically. <laughs> it's just really, I just really like him as a, as a person, I think. And, and I think after watching this, you probably will too. Yeah. Michael J. Fox's middle name is Andrew. Is that true? Absolutely true. It's Michael A. Fox. Michael A. Fox. Well, it was a, it was a reference, isn't it? Was it Michael J. Pollard? It's a reference yeah. to a classic movie star. Yeah, so. that's right. Still cool, though. Also, anyway. otherwise it would have sounded a bit self-aggrandizing. Michael A. Fox. Michael, <laughs> comma, A. Fox. That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, he, he was and indeed He was is. and indeed yes. is. Uh, and we gave that four stars. That's four Empire stars for still. Uh, if you have Apple TV, that's highly, highly recommended. Finally, for this week's reviews, we come to The Mother. Not a description of James Dyer, but uh, <laughs> tell us about it, James. Ah, uh, The Mother. This is You Mother. You Mother. This is uh, a film from Mulan's Nikki Caro. It stars Jennifer Lopez in a film that is essentially taken where Liam Neeson, Jennifer Lopez. So if you want to put it that way, if you want to be reductive, that is basically what this film is. So, so let me give you some context. So Jennifer Lopez is 
has a very particular set of skills. She has served many tours in Iraq. She's become a bit of a badass. And we meet her in an FBI safe house where she's basically sitting there trying to cut a deal. And she's like, they're going to find us. You can't keep me safe. You don't know how to keep me safe. And she's absolutely right because Joseph Fiennes turns up and stabs her in her pregnant stomach within five minutes of this film starting. And I have to be honest, that's quite a difficult thing to get past in a film. Like, yeah. I mean... You don't have to get past it because he is the bad guy. He is the bad guy, but it's like, it's a lot to deal with at the beginning. I was like, I, I you know, I, but the rest of the film, to be fair, isn't as upsetting as that particular moment is because she gives birth, the baby's fine, spoiler, uh, and because the baby's life will be in danger because she has this essentially crime syndicate after her, she sends the baby off to be adopted and goes on her merry way, goes off and lives in the wilderness. So we can flash forward 12 years. The villains have come out of the woodwork. They're going for her daughter. They abduct her daughter. She, so she comes out of her wilderness retirement to, shall we say, kill the shit out of all of them. And I have to say, she does a very, very good job of that. So J-Lo in this, like, you thought she was good at pole dancing. She kills with the absolute best of them. Like, she completely convinces as a kind of Brian Mills-esque, I will, you know, wipe the floor with you kind of badass. She's a sniper. She's got a mean knife that she stabs people with. Uh, yeah, so she she murderizes a whole bunch of people in this. And that stuff's really fun. The only thing... <laughs> Yay, murder. It is. It's, it's a lot of fun murder. The only thing about this film that I found some of the, so we say, the action direction a little bit too sedentary. It didn't like, it lacked a certain pizzazz. It wasn't, it wasn't invigorating enough. So I think she's really good, but I just felt a lot of the action stuff fell flat in this. Also, this film is relentlessly stupid from beginning to end with people making choices that make you want to bash your head repeatedly against the screen. And I found that intensely frustrating to the point where I almost couldn't get past it. That said, there's fun stuff in it. Joseph Fiennes is hamming up like you wouldn't believe. Gail Garcia Banal is in it as a kind of like drugs kingpin. Uh, Omari Hardwick kind of plays an FBI agent who's kind of her you know, a sort of love interest. Uh, and Lucy Pays, who plays her daughter in this. Her daughter, who I want to say his name is Chloe, but actually Zoe. I'm pretty sure it's Zoe. Zoe yes, yes, there we go. Uh, but look, it's a film. She kills a lot of people. Helen, did you have more fun with this? I, I quite enjoyed this just because I didn't, maybe I didn't expect much of it, but I think J-Lo, I find a really compelling screen presence. Like she's amazing. She's, she's a amazing. proper movie star and she has so much charisma. And when she does the sort of, you know, she's actually kind of played the grim kind of professional woman in a man's world kind of thing before. I mean, obviously out of sight, for example, being yeah. an amazing case of it. Uh, but she she does she did kind of convince me as somebody who could absolutely fuck shit up like really <laughs> really uh, terrifying prospect here and and I was kind of looking forward to the big the big finale with her two ex boyfriends and and you know everything going wrong but but I quite enjoyed I, I get what you're saying about the kind of kineticness of the action but what I quite enjoyed was some of the cleverness of the action I think there's some really clever kind of tactics and really clever moments in the way that she sets things up. So I, mm. I quite enjoy that. I think Nikki Caro is an incredibly talented filmmaker. And I love also that she made room for actual character work in well, this. Actually, you know? I think this is this film's strength over and above its action. I think yeah. it actually works on a, on a better level that you've got a, a kind of an emotionally cauterized woman who's being forced to face up to her maternal side, which she has successfully buried for over a decade. And then you've got a child who has been brought up in a well-adjusted home, but who's trying to connect with her biological mother and them almost meeting in the middle where there's almost like an exchange of 
hey, I'll give you a little bit of, you know, emotional resonance and you teach me how to kill people with a sniper rifle. Like, it's like that kind of uh, cultural exchange, I think, actually works quite well and is quite touching. Yeah. So uh, while I, I'm not 100% convinced by the action, I do think, partly because there are some great performances here, mm. I think the emotional stuff lands quite well. It's Look, it's a lot of fun. If you're just like, you know, surfing for a movie on a Friday night, this is... this is. You could do a lot worse world. than yeah. The Mother. And so that is three stars for the mother. I think I'm at the high end of a three. You're maybe at the lower end. I'm at the lower end of a three, Uh, sure. But but nevertheless, that is, as we always say, a recommendation. And that is it for this week's Empire podcast. Uh, Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by, well, we'll be joined by Chris again, for one. And we will also be joined by some guests that I haven't got 100% clear in my head yet. (laughs) In fairness, I did ask but I wasn't 100% clear on the answer. Sorry, Chris, if you made it really clear and I've just lost it in the giant thread of messages. That is it for this week. It's, that's a goodbye from John. Meg! <laughs> goodbye. And it's a goodbye from James. Megs! <laughs> and it's a goodbye from me. I am off to say James Dyer three times and see if it really does make him disappear. <laughs> Very good. James Dyer, James Dyer, James Dyer! I'm still here on the Pilot TV podcast this week. Rebecca Ferguson is on talking about Silo. Actually, that was last week, but it was a good interview. Listen to it. All right.